Hello, everyone. This is Adam Meister, the Bitcoin Meister, the Disrupt Meister. Welcome to This Week in Bitcoin. Today is January the 10th, 2020. Strong hand. Golden age 2020. Bitcoin is the next Bitcoin. In motion. These guys are in motion, baby. All right. Value your wealth in Bitcoin. Don't FOMO on altcoins. I'm offended by some. I've got the conviction. <laughs> we got a new show here every freaking day. And now an international panel has been assembled on this great day. Brad Mills is here. Simon Lelybelt is here. They're both making their debuts. And Jeff Andrew, you guys are familiar with him. He's coming in from the United States of America. Now, we're going to start it off a little bit differently today because we got two guys that maybe uh, some of you haven't you don't you're not familiar with brad he's all over freaking uh twitter so we'll start with brad mills what, what's what's your story hey man thanks for having me on uh my story i i'm an entrepreneur a serial entrepreneur i guess that means i i fail a lot at, at starting businesses and then i got lucky with bitcoin so i had some experience in gaming and made some made some games on facebook and then kind of knew, you know, virtual currency made sense to people from running the Facebook game business, found out about Bitcoin in 2011, started mining in my basement. And, you know, Bitcoin was crazy volatile back then too. So then I, I kind of like just held and then went back to my game business. And then uh, I got goxed. And uh, so, so that's why I have the proof of the uh, January three key thing on my name because uh, I like to spread that message of Trace Mayer's proof of key, proof of what is it? Proof of uh, proof of uh, the, what was, yeah, proof, proof of, of keys. keys, proof of keys, proof of keys. yeah, because uh, yeah, that sucks to lose your Bitcoin when you're that early, yeah. you know. <laughs> so, so anyway, I got back in. I, I started investing and uh, held through the the craziness started a podcast last year and uh you know I, I did some analyst work for a fund in 2017 and mostly now i'm just holding investing and playing video games all right you you are you said you got lucky there i don't i don't agree you were in early you learned about it now how much uh percentage wise how much did you lose at gox all of it or uh uh pretty significant probably 80 percent all right, but so that twenty percent that you kept—I look on the positive side—you still have that twenty percent, right? Oh yeah, for sure. So, so the, the twenty percent was was enough to keep me interested in uh, in the space. So when I had my game company going in 2013-14, but I still had my Bitcoin, you know, and, and I started mining again once I lost it in Gox because I was like, I got to get my stack back, what that I lost in Gox. So I started mining again and took all took the rest of the money that was in my company's bank account and invested it in Bitcoin mining so that I could get my stack back in 2013-14. Wait a minute, see, that's not luck. That is not luck. That is conviction. You held your Bitcoin and you also used company funds to get more Bitcoin. That's not luck. That is, I love that. I, I, so don't, don't, people say, oh, that's guy got lucky. No, he didn't get lucky. You had a strong Yeah, I guess man. you're right. It was conviction. It's all about holder of, last, holder of last resort that just sells the top. Yeah, and you learned a lot. And you learned a lesson and from Gox. At the top. <laughs> you, you, you learned a lesson from Gox. You never 
it did anything that silly again, keeping 80% of your Bitcoin. Letting, yeah, letting someone that. hold 80% of your Bitcoin is, yeah. Never trust me. Roger Ver. That's what I learned. Oh, pound that like button, people. <laughs> All these dudes are linked to below. Okay, let's start. Now, Simon, let, let, let me talk before Simon tells us who he is. I want to say one thing. He is in the Netherlands. The Netherlands is a country. I have many followers from the Netherlands. Uh, Boris has been on the show. Aaron has been on the show before. It's big over there. They punch a mighty punch for a little country. Okay, so what goes on in the Netherlands is important. And we're going to talk about the regulation situation over there. And uh, Simon actually is the the expert in this, in, in uh, EU uh EU and Netherlands uh, regulation stifling our, our great Bitcoin there. But tell us a little bit about yourself, Simon. Okay, Adam. Hi. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation. Good to be here on the show. Um, all right. So, um, if if you trace my involvement with e-money um, back to its origin, it's about uh, 20 years ago when David Schaum introduced eCash. Uh, that happened in the Netherlands, and at that point in time, I was working for the central bank as a supervisor. Um, so we had the issue: what do we do with this internet money that comes around, uh, and should it be supervised? Yes or no? So, so I was there at the at the birth, not really of the Bitcoin, but at the birth of the European regulations uh, that cover electronic cash and and what what you call stable coins in the U.S. We call e-money. So we developed a specific um, uh, internet cash regulatory regime, which is called an e-money regime, and was um, basically involved in the banking sector in a number of roles uh, with banks, with the central bank as a supervisor, and now as an independent regulatory consultant. I help out companies uh, comply with regulation, understand where all this regulation comes from. So I'm, I'm sort of a dinosaur. When everyone said, "Well, this, this," I'm, I'm from the age where, where uh, when Chum uh, introduced his e-money on the internet, uh, it was like, "Oh, it's, it's still centralized." Yeah, but we don't have the bandwidth and we don't have the uh, uh, capacity to do it decentralized. So when technology allowed for that, Bitcoin popped up as the, the missing species that was still there to be developed so to me it was like oh all over again we get the same questions uh, new technology new money on the internet and the question how to regulate and um, yeah we've been pretty busy in um, in, in worrying about that in europe uh, and and today marks the day the 10th of january marks the day where all countries in europe uh, should have implemented the anti-money laundering provisions of the so-called uh, fifth european money uh, anti-money laundering directive uh, but not everyone succeeded and not everyone did a proper job so that's uh, that's the fun of being in this session today and it is just it's amazing that i scheduled you for this day uh it just it just worked out perfectly so that you're going to be talking about that in, in, a, in a few minutes it is amazing i mean you've been around this space for a really long time i mean when did you get your first bitcoin then i mean you've been around for a while yeah okay so so ian grig um i hooked up with ian grig very early on in the 90s here in amsterdam um, and he already had a um, uh, public key cryptographic uh, cash system working with smart contracts, uh, literally smart contracts, hashing contracts, uh, putting a, a, the key over it and then exchanging coins, all that stuff. Um, so, so those were the early days. And, and Ian actually in, in 2011 or 12, uh, he, he popped me a line. He said, eh, there's this Bitcoin stuff going on. So I immediately went about it, looked at it and said, no, this is not going to happen anyway. It doesn't have sufficient power base. Uh, this will not fly uh, for, for many reasons, I said. But but I said exactly the same about the euro. So don't, Bitcoiners shouldn't feel, shouldn't worry. Uh, I have the same 
believe that the euro has, hasn't got a proper power base as well. But uh, it takes some time before we discover it, or it's 40 years in time. Who knows? Anyhow, uh, I was, I was, uh, my first bitcoins. Um, I think I did a, I did a tour for the company Bitonic, uh, one of the Bitcoin exchanges here in 2013, and and they paid me in bit, uh, in bitcoins. So that's, I guess, that's where I started. All right, that is great. You, you, you were uh, early on getting paid in Bitcoin. That that must be a great feeling. You, you, you've got like, oh, they'll, they'll pay me a two hundred bucks worth in Bitcoin, and now that Bitcoin is worth a lot more uh, than than they paid you back then. So that that's always a good feeling. Yeah, people remember get paid. That's a, a lot of people complain. I can't buy it. Well, uh, earn it. Uh, have somebody pay you. In. All right, Jeff, you've been on the show many a time, but so everyone's familiar with you. But uh, say say what are you up to, and just uh, welcome back. Yeah, great to be here. Uh, I run KeyKeeperIRA.com, which is basically a product where you can use IRA or 401k funds to buy and hold Bitcoin, but do it in a such a way where it's non-custodial and you can actually hold your own keys. So that's what really differentiates us from most other, you know, Bitcoin IRA type solutions that you see out there today. And he also writes uh, controversial articles about post-capitalism, and we will be discussing that. Where's that? What's the link for that or the name of it? The post-capitalist? What was it called? Uh, I, I, oh, where do to- I write? It's just on Medium. Yeah, if you check out my Twitter profile, there's a link to my Medium, uh, which will be down in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, and it's linked to below. The, I, it's already down there, the post-capitalist Perfect. future. A post-capitalist future. Yeah. Okay. Well, before we get into a post-capitalist future, let's talk about the regulatory present here. Now, it all on CoinDesk, they actually bring this up today. Uh, Darabit, a Dutch derivatives exchange uh, to move to friendly Panama. AMLT5, uh, European crypto firm, rates for higher cost of AMLT5, which uh, is supposed to take effect today. So we're, we're going to start off on this. Uh, this is and a lot of americans are saying why do i got to hear about this european regulation it is important it, it could set the stage uh in america it, it's it's something that isn't good for little crypto companies and uh i believe boris brought this up on a past show and that's why he recommended that simon come on this show so simon tell us what this aml d5 is and why and the, and how the netherlands is really taking it to an extreme level from, from what i see Okay, well, I think um, uh, in in the U.S. environment, you're pretty much aware of the uh, sort of the FATF rules uh, that are being hit on at, uh, exchanges with the travel rule and all that stuff. Um, so that's that's sort of the international dimension where where all uh, governments together say we're gonna uh, make sure that all crypto players are being properly uh, regulated, supervised, or licenses licensed. That's that's where it starts. So. Um, everyone has to do this in their own country. Already in the United States, you said for uh, the crypto players, well, well, you're arguing for the, for the ICO stuff, like is it the security, yes or no? But for the uh, currencies, you're saying this is money transfer business, so get regulated or get your bid license. So you've you've organized your licensing stuff properly in the US. Now, what happened in, well, sort of, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, anyhow, so what happens in the European uh, side of it? In, Euro- in Europe, we said, well, this isn't currency. This is money transfer. It's nothing. So the, the currencies themselves haven't been uh, regulated as securities or payment instruments in Europe, but they needed to be regulated for anti-money laundering purposes. So the AMLB5 is our sort of European FATF rule saying anyone who, ha- who holds custodial wallets or exchanges cash uh, for uh, for crypto 
needs a license. Uh, or that is, that's where they started. And when working on the directive, they said, no, no, it's not requiring a license. It's just a registration because everything else would be too much of a burden. So the European rule on anti-money laundering is get your registration, uh, get your anti-money laundering rules in place, and that's it. Uh, have fun and go on with your business. That's sort of the idea in Europe. And now what turns out, each member state then has uh, one and a half year to implement the rule in local law. And that's where local governments and politicians take over and local central banks take over and say, yeah, 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 well, we don't care what the European directive says. We just go notch, uh, we up it a notch. Uh, so the Dutch central bank said, no, 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 we don't like this registration. We really want supervision. Our, our local council of state says, our, our sort of our Supreme Court says, that's not, that's not doable. It's forbidden. You shouldn't do it. But the politicians said, we don't care. We just move on. So you get this uh, license regime instead of a registration regime, meaning that, that your costs are, are way more than with a registration. Uh, and that means that you're, you're killing off the smaller players in the market, leaving the market open for big, big U.S. companies, big tech companies. Anyone who has the funds can, can basically grab up the European market and, um, and uh, the, the supervisors in, in Europe uh, kill off the, the local European initiatives. Uh, and that's really a shame because... because at, at the moment, we're in a phase where the European Commission is asking everyone in Europe, how should we do supervision for crypto? They, they, are, they haven't answered that question yet, but by preemptively going further than this in this anti-money laundering area, uh, there's, there's, yeah, there's only big, big companies left in the future. So that, that's sort of a very brief summary. Uh, feel free to... How, how much is this costing these uh, small companies? How, how much is the regulation costing companies, do you think? Okay, so uh, in, if you would take a very simple version, if you would only do um, uh, money laundering procedures and stuff that, that comes with that, um, your compliance cost that you would have to make internally would be about 1K per year. And uh, there would be out-of-pocket cost to the supervisor, which is 25 to 50K euro. So, so in the simple version, you'd have 150,000 euros to pay, uh, of which 50,000 out-of-pocket. But... In the extended version, uh, with a licensing regime, there's going to be this repetitive license uh, payment of 50k per year, and the rules are stricter. So your uh, compliance costs are going to be another 100,000 per year. So you can sort of, you're around 200 or 300,000 euros a year, of which uh, 50 or 75 out of pocket, and the other and the rest is is a cost for compliance and stuff, and that's because you have to well do do all the extra stuff for the licensing uh, rules wow what a what a hassle what, what a ha now what countries do get the best you said france is doing a good job with this actually yeah france was is doing a, quite a nice job because the french they basically said well uh, here's here's the um, here's the corridor for a registration if you want the registration go to the left but if you voluntarily want to go for a license because that that gives you a better standing in the market feel free go to the right and then pick up your license pay for it and so companies can choose so the french literally implement the directive properly um because each company can then just say well i'll go for the registration don't no need to go for the license and in the netherlands there's no choice for, to just go for a registration i mean they called it they labeled it a registration but it's like like uh, labeling an elephant for a crocodile and then uh, and then saying no no it says uh, it says crocodile it's still a crocodile i mean it's it's putting a label on it that doesn't that that's not true so 
Um, yeah. Are, so where do you see, where do you where do you see this ending with the Netherlands? Are there going to be a lot of companies leaving, just like this one company just yeah. left? Yeah. So a couple of companies are are now saying, well, they're a bit is saying, well. Um, given our market focus, we can also uh, transfer our business to a different location and continue working because they are located in the Netherlands. And one of the criteria to to need a license is that you're located in the Netherlands. Even if you don't have Dutch customers, if you are in the Netherlands, you're gonna be hit by the regulation. So they said, well, we'll just move our shop. Uh, a couple of smaller players are closing down uh, and considering moving. So we have already four or five players in the Netherlands um, uh, having outlined uh, that that they're that they're moving, and uh, some more will follow. But the regulatory debate in the Netherlands is not not at its final moment yet. We still have the Senate in place, and if we're lucky, the Senate will will ask the fundamental questions: Is this lawful? And they can ask uh, on a specific provision. They can ask our uh, Council of State, please review this once more, and uh, and tell us whether this is lawful, yes and no, yes or no. And and the hope of the industry is that the um, that the politicians will ask the, the question, is it lawful? They will ask separate advice from the Council of State. And I'm completely certain that the Council of State will throw the whole law in the shredder because they already said that, that this was forbidden, what's happening right now. So that's, our, that's the only way out. And otherwise, we just need to uh, live, with the, live with the new rules. Oh, Ralph, bureaucratic nightmare here. Well, hopefully it does get shredded up and... Uh... It goes. It, it seems like. A, I mean, is it the worst? Is this the worst regulation of all the EU countries? Do you think? Uh, well, Germany is even doing. Uh, is, is outpacing the Netherlands. In Germany, they they went even one step further, and they said, "Well, actually, Bitcoin is like a security." So they they basically say you need to be a financial company, you need to have a financial license as a broker or an investment or securities broker to be uh, to to be in there. So so the Germans are are even giving their their industry a more more hard time. Now, uh, by the way, everybody, his article and information about this, it is all linked to below. Now, other panel guests, I want you to uh, get a chance to uh, speak here. Do you have any questions for Simon? Any comments on this situation? I guess well, the only question I have, sorry, you go first. No, man, you go. I got, I'm still reading. I'm still like on Twitter. <laughs> reading. Okay. I was going to say, does this apply only to... Um, companies located in the Netherlands or is it apply to every company that serves customers in the Netherlands? So in other words, Durbit's moving to Panama. Are they going to be able to serve Netherlands customers? No, they're, they're not able to serve the um, uh, Dutch customers. Wow. They, they weren't doing this right now. So, so, gotcha. so, but, but the thing is, uh, if you're a U.S. company and you have a foothold in Europe and a registration, you, you need to uh, acquire registrations. But if you don't have a foothold in Europe as a company, under the Dutch law, you cannot serve uh, Dutch customers. Gotcha. If, you, if you're a US-only company with no uh, foot in Europe, then you're just forbidden to, to, to have Dutch customers. Wow. So does this create a situation where it makes sense for, I guess, these companies to try and locate in whatever EU jurisdiction has the lowest level of regulation? Because then they'd still be able to serve Dutch customers. Yeah, there's there's a, there's the the thing that you that you would have to do is you would not have to focus on Dutch customers. So so you set up shop in in Belgium, for example, um, but you don't focus on Dutch customers. That means that Dutch people come uh, digitally to Belgium, uh, and you're not inviting Dutch people. So you cannot advertise on a market. You cannot put in okay. that's Dutch. So you really must say I'm. It's a European play. Anyone is welcome. It's not focused on on any market specifically for the whole of Europe. And then anyone who comes at you can be served from this one country. That, that's sort of the trick that you have to do. 
Okay, but that means there would there, some, there would have to be some smart Dutch citizens that would get the wink wink and know to deal know to deal with that company. They couldn't be targeted, but uh, they could still uh, deal with that company. Okay, okay, that's interesting. Now you, you you mentioned Germany. I've got a I've got a German question for you. That they're they're the strictest, but at the same time we heard uh, that and maybe this is the that banks there will be able to sell Bitcoin, and I thought that was a positive. I I, I thought. But it looks like the, re yeah. the reason that is is because they're the ones that are going to be able to afford this these licenses and and deal with all the regulation, I guess. Well, well, the reason is if if you qualify Bitcoin as a security, then uh, you can't disc you can't um, put the Coca Cola share uh, apart from the Bitcoin because they're both considered shares. So uh, if you qualify the Bitcoin as a share, and banks are allowed to deal in shares for their customers then they are allowed to deal uh, in Bitcoin for their customers. That's because they chose the highest qualification for the Bitcoin and put it in the in the bracket of this is equity, this is shares. So anyone who can deal with shares, basically every bank, can also uh, issue them or send them to the customers. So that's that's why the positive thing in terms of banks step into Bitcoin is basically a bad thing because it means everyone else needs to step up to the bank level uh, of supervision and supervisory rules to, to join the game in Germany. Okay. All right. Well, uh, we will keep an eye on all this. Any, Brad, any comments uh, about this before we move on? Well, the, to me, like, this seems like a huge problem. It seems like, um, I don't know how bad, I, I actually thought that the market was going to kind of react negatively to this when, when it came into effect. Um, because from the way I understood it, like bottle pay was, was the lightning network tipping bot on, uh, on Twitter that, that a lot of Bitcoiners started to cheerlead and adopt and, and use and bottle pay got a lot of growth, but then they announced a couple of weeks ago that they were shutting down because of this AML 5d or whatever the heck it is, because, uh, it, it even applies to non-custodial wallets. Yeah. So, yeah. Then I saw I started looking into it back then, and and I, I remember seeing Samurai Wallet strategy, which you know Samurai Wallet is the one of the main uh, fungible cheerleaders for for Bitcoin, like fungibility, privacy, mixing, all that. Um, they said their plan was to not be in any EU member state when when they tell them to go beep themselves. See, I didn't I didn't swear. Yeah, <laughs> but they did. And then they said, we will not and cannot comply with AML 5D. So I, that was back in March when they that, when this discussion was going on about all the different ways to avoid KYC while using Bitcoin or how to acquire Bitcoin, you know, by you know, getting mining it, getting it from friends, like working, getting paid in it, whatever. And then the discussion came around to this these crazy restrictive laws in, in, in the UK or in the EU. So how do these companies plan on dealing with this to not comply if they don't want to comply? What's how, how do we resist this? <laughs> that's my, yeah, that's my I, like. Yeah, well, I, I think if, you, if you're in, in the current European or Dutch environment, uh, there's like a sort of um, an announcement by the supervisor. We, we, we dislike Bitcoin. We don't we don't feel you can do this properly and securely. And as a result, if as a Bitcoin company, you want a bank account, you're being scrutinized by the bank. So everyone in the Bitcoin community and the, in, in the industry basically already has 
has those anti-money laundering rules in place because if they don't, they wouldn't even get their bank account. So, so there's one layer of regulation that the Dutch community doesn't care about, which is effectively those those money laundering rules. They have them in place already, and they just get a, a registration and they go on doing what they're doing. But the the terrible thing here is that they get an extra layer of regulation on top of it, which wasn't which wasn't in the regulation in the first place. So this this base layer is doable. It's already in place for a lot of companies, and uh, <clears throat> uh, and this extra layer is the one that kills us. So that's that's really the um, so you're talking the base layer one is just the general KYC AML. Yeah, process, yeah, all right? that stuff. Yeah, you need to get it in and place. This, and this, this next one, this next layer is this really restrictive crypt, anti-crypto, anti-privacy. Yeah, right. it, it's sort of put on your suit and your tie and behave like a bank uh, rules, those, those kind of rules. So you're saying it's Dutch, but it's for all of the European Union countries, right? Yeah, so the base layer should be in place for all in the, the European countries. But then you see, for example, the uh, the English, uh, the British, they say, well, um, this also applies to crypto uh, for crypto to crypto uh, transactions. But that's not in the EU directive. So you see each country taking a, a different shot at at uh, increasing the scope and the, the 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 impact of the legislation in their own way as they see fit, and that that creates a a myriad of of local flavors, local ice creams, AMOB five. Uh, where only a few ice creams are the original ice cream, and the rest is a, is a lot of toppings that shouldn't be in there anyway. God. So, well, we... so is like okay. I I wonder though for European Bitcoiners uh, or even uh, like crypto users, whatever. If you're not even using Bitcoin for anybody that uses any kind of cryptocurrency in the in the EU, isn't this extreme? Like, don't we find this is insanely restrictive for it to apply to non-custodial wallets? Doesn't that mean like any any wallet on the app store that doesn't hold people's funds has to comply with these rules by by you know getting KYC and all that? Otherwise, they face fines and stuff. Okay, the the non-custodials are um, uh, non-custodial providers are out of scope uh, in the EU legislation, but some local countries may be different. The uh, British, I, I'm not sure if they say that non-custodial wallets are forbidden, but they say the peer. I mean, yeah, it's a definition stuff. It's it's. Let's say the British have their own way, like the Brexit and all the stuff. They 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 cho- they chose a very specific topping on top of this AMLD five uh, stuff, and it is indeed. I mean, undoable, strange, uh, doesn't make sense. But uh, you've got to understand that the FATF. Is basically their 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 uh, decision last June with the travel rule was to divide the uh, Bitcoin community into sort of the the legislative part and the non-legislative part. If you compare it to the early days of music on the internet, everyone was sort of uh, streaming, doing tour, doing Napster, and now you have Spotify in place, and the regular customer wants to be in the Spotify area and not in the Napster illegals illegal space. And that's what the FATF is driving at with the travel rule and such. They just separate out this peer-to-peer uh, non-custodial area until it's really uh, you can really label it uh, fully as criminals, and then the rest of the world, which is fully regulated, is the is the proper proper Bitcoin world. That's that's sort of their vision behind this this uh, this whole uh, thing. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a nightmare of a vision there. Uh- <laughs> yeah, it's not my vision, I think, but it's my interpretation of their vision. I, I want to see like where's the resistance here, like where are people standing up and saying this is bullshit. We can't do this. This is like totally antithetical to what Bitcoin is. Is there is there 
I, I've, I've had a flu going through my family for the last week, yeah. so I haven't been on Twitter very much for the week. But, like, how are people reacting to this on Twitter with, with this rule happening? Well, well, in the um, if, if we if we skip the uh, European stuff, but go back to the FATF rule, the the the, the core idea behind these FATF rules on um, uh, complying with all this this additional um, uh, requirements, there was a lot of pushback by the industry. There was a consultation by the FATF. Everyone was sort of up in arrears, except for the uh, U.S. community. And the reason being is the following: under U.S. legislation. Uh, cryptocurrency dealers are already subject to money transmission rules. Under money transmission rules, they should have already applied with the travel rule. They should have already sent the names of uh, the customers with all the transactions because they're money transmission agents and those are the rules for money transmissions providers. So the Americans were being nicely being informed by the FATF that if they were going to speak up in this whole discussion and make a lot of noise, then their local supervisors would go after them and notice that for the last five years they didn't live up to the travel rule. Right. So, so, so the whole, who don't whole US, know. U.S. voice was silent because they knew if they were going to say where well, this is stupid, they were going to get fined by the local supervisors. The, for well, people who don't know about that, right? Like FATF yeah. is is the Financial Action Task Force, and yeah. it's not an official body, as far as I understand it. It's just a, a like a coalition of member states and. And stuff that that make recommendations to uh, comply for for banks and stuff to have anti money laundering um, rules is as far as I know there's no like authority that can actually enforce this. It's just suggested that countries all follow the same rules, and then the individual countries then decide whether they want to or not. And uh, you know their their regulators work in their own countries to do it yeah that's that's uh that's true but uh, in practice basically america plays uh, sets the rule book and everyone drives it uh, along these rules so um the as soon as the locals so the whole fatf rules on travel rules for crypto were initiated by the us because the us found it important and that means that us even if the rest of the world won't do it the U.S. supervisors will immediately, after the FATF has established the rule, will immediately say it's also relevant for us and then push it into the industry. And effectively, they told the industry it's or, it was already relevant for mm-hmm. people as money transmitters the past five years. So uh, shut up or be fined for the non, non-compliance of the last five years. So, well, that, And that's why a lot of the exchanges over here started to remove privacy coins from their yeah. Yeah. exchanges because the travel rule... Yeah. basically says that the the bank or the company has to attach like some sort of metadata or something yeah. about the transaction if they're sending it to what another company or withdrawing it personally um for effectively for each transaction the withdrawing personally um if you can establish that it's the same person then there's no harm because then it's not to another person uh, yeah, but, so then you don't need the tra- you don't need to include the that stuff when it's no. a personal withdrawal, but yeah. they couldn't they couldn't actually enforce that on the uh privacy coins because they have like uh yeah, burn exactly. and remint and all this yeah. stuff. Yeah. So yeah. they just are removing all these privacy yeah. coins yeah. from the yeah. exchanges. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it's a separate ball game. I think uh, Adam has a lot more on the agenda for today. So I I, I want to <laughs> say this though. Um that's why I got Simon on the show. So that the North American audience 
can hear about what's going on in Europe so people can make a big stink about it because uh, we know that it's it's a, it's usually Americans and Canadians that are the loudest screamers on uh, on Twitter about this kind of thing and you're you're absolutely right no one is talking about this right now i, I haven't uh uh i mean boris if it wasn't for boris i really wouldn't have uh I've heard of it in in the first place about uh, this. Well, uh, let's not slander Canadians. You said Americans and Canadians. Canadians are a polite people. Let's not. Yeah, let, let's, yeah that's let's a good be nice point. to the Canadians. I don't know. You ever see Francis tweet? Yeah, Francis. That's no, true. Francis yeah. is a rough is a rough Quebecan. Uh, what's the what's the term? Quebecois. 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. That he, he can really. Uh, he's a, a Bitcoin. Uh, he's a toxic Bitcoin maximalist. You know, on, on that topic, why don't we talk about that? That's a, that's a good transition. Um, <laughs> for for some reason, again, people are. Uh, well, there was this Nakamoto thing that came out uh, this week, and my my take on the whole Nakamoto. It's it's some guys that. Are they are they really Bitcoiners or not? Can anyone use the Nakamoto name for their own publication? Uh, it, it, I really don't. I, I say let them compete. I'm not complaining. But again, it, it's brought up the toxic uh, maximalist uh, meme again because there were a lot of guys saying, "No, you got you guys aren't allowed to use uh, the Nakamoto name because uh, you're not Bitcoiners. You're not real Bitcoiners." I mean, there <laughs> there were some definitely some. I mean. Uh, Vitalik Buterin is one of the guys behind this. So, Brad, you had a take on that, actually, I believe. Well, yeah, I, I wanted to, like, find out who was behind it because they, they you know, when they use the term, we are going to be pro-Bitcoin and then brackets BTC, that instantly smells like Roger Ver to me, like he's trying to do a Trojan horse or something, build up a bunch of clout with a new, a new thing and then eventually switch it to be anti-Bitcoin when he's actually talking about Bitcoin cash or something else that he starts, if that fails. So I was like trying to find out like who's behind this. Cause if Vitalik Buterin is an admin in the, in the telegram room where they're banning all these Bitcoiners when they join, that doesn't seem like a pro Bitcoin thing, but also I, I look at it from the point of view of that they're a business and yeah, they don't want to deal with all this drama right away. Like who cares? It's people get censored on Reddit. So, you know, get censored on telegram, like whatever, it's just the market. Um, but it, it turns out that I'm pretty sure it's Bology that um, runs it. The guy that started Earn.com yeah. and then went to, went to uh, uh, Coinbase, and then so the, so when I heard that it was him, I kind of had a little bit of a relief there because I kind of look at it as like levels of of a uh, of a problem, and like level one would be if Roger was you know running it, that would be a problem. That would be a real problem. Level two would be some shit coiner that runs it that maybe has an, an ulterior motive to promote his coin or something like that. But he's also respects Bitcoin and pro and is pro Bitcoin, but maybe just isn't a, a toxic mac maximalist himself. Level three is just like a total scam, you know. <laughs> so I think it's level two because Balaji definitely has been pro Bitcoin in the past. He left Coinbase around the same time that they hired the um, the those hackers that that were doing uh, surveillance on political people, and you know when that whole controversy blew up, Balaji left. So I kind of took that as a little bit of a sign of yeah, he got his paycheck, but he also has a bit of morals, and he left. And he tweets pretty much pro Bitcoin. He tweets about all coins too, but I I feel like he's genuinely pro Bitcoin. So I feel like whatever we think about them using the Nakamoto name and having like Vitalik Buterin and, and like 
Brad Garlinghouse and stuff like that, total shit coiners like contributing. That sucks. But at least it's not Roger Ver <laughs> running it. So. That's the way I'm looking at it. Uh, all right, that that that's 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 your take on it. Do you, do you think the uh, the Bitcoin maximalists who have been up in arms have they been too toxic about this? So that that's been thrown around too as a counter argument, I guess. Well, I have an opinion on that. I can say mine, but if someone else wants to jump in first, I don't want to hog the chat here. All right, Jeff, you get you want to say something about this? Uh, this I, I think it's. I don't want to spend too much time on it because it's a way. Let them run their own business, I say. I, I don't know the Nakamoto name, but again, it was something that happened this week. So, uh, Jeff, any thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, I just don't think it's any kind of a, of a scheme because if if they were trying, if there was any sort of cloak and dagger or anything here, they wouldn't have had the names attached to it that they did from the beginning, right? So I don't think there was really, the problem is that I don't think there was very much forethought or put into it. And I don't think the people that put it together were very self-aware. I think it's mostly just a, a simple lack of self-awareness problem that they thought they could put this new cryptocurrency-related publication out there, try to sort of latch on to the whole Bitcoin thing while sort of playing both sides, right? So I think, honestly, that's my only take on it is just that it, the thing is more defined by lack of self-awareness from the founders than anything else. And choice of the Nakamoto name is a really good example of that. Like, I don't think they were, I just don't think they really understood why that would be so controversial for a multi-coining publication. And again, I just think that goes to simple lack of self-awareness. Dude, that, pound that like button. That's a good, sum, that's a good <laughs> summation of it. Lack of self-awareness. That sums up some of those dudes. Uh, but hey, that's it's true. Th Let me jump in back on there real quick. So I, we saw this happen with, with, uh, what bitcoin did you know when when peter wasn't bitcoin maximalist enough the bitcoin the toxic maximalist bitcoiners just went went nuts and kind of like started attacking him and and started uh making a big problem about him saying like having the word bitcoin in the show name and told him that he was a scammer and all this stuff because he's he's influencing people and he's influencing them towards shit coins instead of bitcoin and um it i think it, it the way that played out it actually affected him and he reasoned that they were right and that he started to focus on bitcoin and he now is a toxic bitcoin maximalist himself and uh i think maybe that's what the the bitcoin immune system does that's what all these maximalists do they they find a you know a foreign object in the in the bloodstream and then they start to coagulate around it and try to expel it from the from the bitcoin ecosystem and that's just what they're doing with this because it seems it's like it's like an attack on the on the host you know like the these multi-coin shitcoin guys coming in some of them that are openly anti-bitcoin really coming in and saying like oh yeah we're pro bitcoin <laughs> so i mean it's it sucks but again like this is a free market this is open source technology you know we someone else should have taken that name yeah. uh, uh, very yeah anyone could have bought it uh, i mean it was probably expensive but that the immune system analogy very good one there like it like to hear it and uh 
All right, uh, Simon. I don't know if you've got a take on all this, on all this gossip and stuff. Do you have any, any, any? Uh, no, no. My, my only take is then that we had earlier this all this stuff about who's uh, who's Nakamoto, and uh, I keep wondering about the movie um, uh, being uh, Wolfgang Amadeus. Uh, we had this movie uh, like uh, being inside the head of Wolf, Wolfgang Amadeus. He didn't want it, or being John Malkovich. That's the that's the that was the movie. I keep I keep thinking about that. Anyone using the name Nakamoto is basically throwing himself into a jungle, and uh, just don't do it. All right. Hey, there, there, Simon, there's a question uh, for you, actually. So I got I got to read this because people are free to do their questions. Someone actually sent this to me over Twitter. Uh, ask him if he thinks there will be a division between Bitcoin users that hold their coins in the regular regulated custodial wallets and the Bitcoiners that hold their own coins, creating a gray group of Bitcoin users. Um, yes, well, if, if we were all going to do all this um, uh, research stuff, you would really end up like in the Eastern Europe uh, countries, like you have the official uh, exchange rate and the unofficial exchange rate. Uh, and there's a risk that if you succeed in, in separating out the two and if, if uh, regulators succeed in forbidding uh, transactions. So, so at present, the personal layer, um, if I personally do some cash to crypto transactions and it's small, it's, it doesn't really uh, hit a, a large volume, then I'm free to do so. I'm not being qualified as a as a crypto exchange. I don't need a license. So there's always a layer where money money and Bitcoin can flow. It's the personal layer. But as soon as they start really building the walls and and stepping in a next phase of regulation, you may well end up with sort of two short two Bitcoins with two exchange rates. It it would be really a dystopic vision, but. Uh, uh, it, it's not unthinkable. I, I'm, I don't see it happening right now. I hope it won't happen, but um, it's, it's a very good question. And, and uh, in, in some of the nightmares, uh, that, that would be the case. I really hope we don't get there. I really hope we don't get there. It's Night, nightmare scenarios. Oh, yeah. I don't like spreading doom, people. I like spreading positivity. So, guys, retweet this show so more people <laughs> hear about this situation. So it doesn't come. So it doesn't come to this. Well, since we're talking about the future here, I want to get Jeff wrote a controversial uh, essay. Uh, what was it? The the post capitalist future is that the name of it, Jeff? Yeah, yeah. I actually wrote it. I wrote it about a month ago. Yeah. Uh, believe it or not, initially, but it picked up some more controversy. You know, made a little splash back then, and then it sort of all restarted up again this week because I sat down. Uh, what was released this week? I did a two and a half hour interview with Marty Bent about the original essay. Um, so you can check out the essay. It's linked in the show notes here. Um, and basically, I just sort of make the point that, uh, you know, <clears throat> capitalism, as I see it, is more of a transitory period of development than an economic system that's designed to last over a very long term. And I sort of make the case for that and what the natural consequences of that might be going forward in the future as that system sort of winds down. And in the essay, if you check it out, you'll see that I was heavily influenced by a book by Hilaire Bullock written in the early 20th century called The Servile State. Because Bullock's theorized that, you know, when the capitalist system eventually began to wound down, wind down, um, it would start to resemble a more servile relationship where you'd have very few holders of actual capital that would be the only employers and producers in society. Um, and we'd all just essentially be obligated to work for them. Um, and he outlined a variety of different ideas in his book about how that fate could be avoided. Uh, you know, unfortunately, again, this book was written over 100 years ago. A lot of the ideas he came up with 
are going to look somewhat dated if you were to go back and read the book. So I tried to come up with some more, you know, modern spins on that general idea. Um, so the, the essay is, it's not short. Uh, it's about a 20 minute read. Uh, so it's, you know, it'll take a while to really sit and digest and, and uh, work with it if you're inclined to do so. But I enjoyed writing it and I got a lot of really good feedback both on the original essay a month ago and on the, you know, long form interview about it that dropped uh, earlier this week. Did you, did you propose like what happens at the end uh, after post-capitalism? Yeah. I mean, so Bullock, uh goes to a, uh, comes from a, an economic tradition referred to as distributism, right? So the idea behind distributism is you respect the idea of private property, but you use positive law to ensure that the property doesn't centralize. So that's really the servile state, if that's, if that's where things end up, is based around the idea that eventually all the capital cent centralizes in a small enough group of uh, holders that they're able to form an oligopoly and collude against everyone else, right? Which is not that far flung of an idea. So Block had well, a lot of what, ideas. That's what we're, we're in right now. Right, exactly. So. Block had a lot of ideas regarding how that could have been avoided in early 20th century England. You know, I proposed a few of my ideas at the end of the essay, um, one of which some of them were obvious. And I didn't try to I tried not to propose anything too radical because I take I tend to look at these things as uh, as incrementalist, meaning you try to interfere as little as possible, do the least radical solutions first uh, and then sort of move from there. So a lot of it has to do with trying to move you know control and decision making to the most to the most decentralized level possible and some examples i gave there um one very obvious one would be more vigorous enforcement of the antitrust law that we already have on the books both in the united states and in europe i'm less familiar with european antitrust law but in the united states we sort of just stopped enforcing it in the 90s i mean the laws are still there just takes the political will to actually enforce them um and then for Companies that you know are by their nature very large or already very large. I sort of made a proposal that is along the lines of what Germany currently calls co-determination. So the proposal that I put in there is that once a company were to get over a certain size, and obviously it's an arbitrary distinction. People can argue what, what that dividing line would be, but you could define it by revenue or whether that when that company eventually became publicly traded or however you wanted to do it. Uh, at that point, a certain number of board seats would be reserved for the company's employees. And that would have a couple potential effects. I mean, number one, it's going to favor the smaller competitors that don't have to comply with that requirement over the I think the I heard company. Bernie Sanders talk about something like that recently. Correct. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not, this is not a, a, a wild idea that I pulled out of the sky. Like I said, Germany already does it. Um, so it's not, this is, these are sort of uh, almost milquetoast solutions. But I tried to make more of a case as to why I believe that, you know, unfortunately, if we don't start to do look at things like this, that um, the alternative is going to be much worse. And when I sat what down do, with Marty, think the alternative would be the alternative is the is basically, you know, and I outlined this in the essay and Block does a better job outlining this to me is the servile state where due to it. And this is actually, I think, even worse than it was in Block's day. Because economies of scale, as industrialization has progressed over the 20th century, economies of scale have gotten larger and larger and larger. And the benefit to being a large producer over a small producer has gotten more and more and more and more progressively extreme. It's also radically tilted the balance of power between labor and capital drastically toward capital. Um, 
labor is almost just like replaceable cogs at this point. It's almost useless. Um, so, and I think that's only going to get more and more and more drastic as time goes on. So if you want to, if you don't want to end up in a situation where we only have a very, very small number of producers and employers to which the rest of us are essentially subject, uh, at that point, having a government is almost irrelevant, right? Because the people that are going to be in control are going to be that small number of producers who also control all the employment that solutions like the ones that I mentioned, or maybe totally different from the ones that I mentioned. Um, are pro are uh, there's something that I think people should be thinking about and looking at. I guess that's the best way to put it. Um, in terms of where I think, big, you know, I did tie it both in the essay and a little more explicitly uh, in the interview with Marty to Bitcoin in terms of the fact that I think Bitcoin is a decentralizing factor. So it is one thing that cuts in that direction because one thing Bitcoin prevents, uh, you know, your oligopolists from doing is controlling the money supply. Right. Do I think Bitcoin is enough in and of itself? I don't know the answer to that. I think probably not, but I'm an all of the above type guy. So in other words, I think Bitcoin's a great solution. I work in Bitcoin. I spend a lot of time talking about it, programming. You know, it's my primary business, the whole nine yards. But that doesn't mean that I'm also opposed to other solutions that I think would also cut in that decentralizing direction. All right. Um, when I one thing uh, from from the essay that I recall reading, you did mention uh, the the fiat system uh, exploding, <laughs> going down the tubes. That that playing a role in in all of this. Right. So Block sort of thought the idea was that without you know, Block was a little bit of a, a pessimist, and that he thought this was going to be really really difficult to stave off. Right. And I'm a little bit I'm a little bit more optimistic in a society where something like Bitcoin is available, in that the it makes the servile state a little bit less stable because the servile state basically depends on the fact that you have to have a mechanism in place to expand the money supply to, to sort of create enough benefits for otherwise powerless people such that they remain consumers. Um, this is kind of a complicated topic. The essay goes into it a little bit further. So by if you remove the ability to expand the fiat money supply and you restrain the government's ability to sort of provide those benefits, which are again, they're actually not designed to help people. They're basically designed to just ensure people are getting, they have just enough to get by, survive and consume for the producers. If you constrain the government's ability to do that, it does make the servile state type system more unstable. Now, everybody, this has obviously intrigued some people. It is linked to below. You can read the entire thing. Give it a, a critique. It's 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 something different, and I'm glad uh, glad to have Jeff on the show to to talk about it. And no, I don't. I mean, I've got a real positive outlook on things. So, but this is a it, you you decide on your own, people. You you read it yourself, and it is it is thought provoking, uh, to, to to say the least. Now, ponder so, that like button. <laughs> that was freaking awesome pounded he's he's better at this than you are Adam. yeah man you, you gotta take over this show dude and again he's if you if you want to take over this show or people want to take over the show listen to his podcast it's uh it's linked to below uh it's uh they're all linked to below their their twitter accounts let's talk about something that was big in the news uh I, I don't like specifically to talk about the fiat price because i value my wealth in bitcoin but of course um but uh, there are people that are saying that now uh, some some investors, when uh, 
there, there's an international risk out there when a, a big black swan suddenly happens uh, and then disappears that they, they go into Bitcoin, that it is, it is a short-term uh, safe haven asset after what we saw this week uh, with the Iran and, and Trump and that, that whole situation. There was a lot of uh, pl- uh, price fluctuation that seemed to be centered around those events. So uh, do, do, do you guys on the panel see uh, Bitcoin as a, a safe haven? Was this just a coincidence what happened uh, this week? Uh, I, I'll start with Simon. What, what do you say? Um, I, I think one of the approaches you can take is uh, just saying, well, Bitcoin is a completely uncorrelated asset, so it's good to have it in your portfolio. Yeah. And if that's your point, uh, then the next step is how available is it to the masses? Uh, and the um, normalization that occurs with the regulation, with the anti-money laundering regulations, means that the masses get more access, easy access to Bitcoin and may also decide to add Bitcoin to their uh, portfolio as an uncorrelated asset. Um, so one of the tendencies that might happen is that if the Bitcoin availability opens up to a broader range of people, given that even banks may start doing Bitcoin stuff uh, as, as part of regular investment portfolios, um, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if, if the uncorrelation will disappear, but um, I'm, I'm certainly convinced that it has a, uh, has a role in an investor's portfolio and a, and a relevant role in an investor's portfolio and whether you actually can, can link the safe haven role in specific events um, uh, to the to the rate, I'm not certain, but but I'm pretty certain that this uh, uh, retail availability of Bitcoin may increase due to the fact that for the for the, let's say the white the white part of the Bitcoin market, uh, there might be a bigger retail reach. But but that's my take. Uh, just uh, my shot at it. Brad, how about you? You're in Canada. How did this go over there? Oh, well, there's an extra aspect. Okay, yes. In Canada, they're dealing with the unfortunate, uh, it kept the, the situation still going on because of that horrible plane crash, which is just a tragedy. But um, what, what's your take on uh, safe haven uh, Bitcoin? Well, I think that I don't. I don't get why that narrative has, has been going around. I saw a couple charts. I just put one in your YouTube chat. Um, Masari put out a chart. Yeah. Um, I saw. I looked at the comparison between um, oil, gold, and Bitcoin during the whole uh, Iran scenario, and yeah, they move very correlated. Like traditionally, Bitcoin is an uncorrelated asset, but lately it's been pretty much correlated during certain events like things will move up and down in in sequence uh but bitcoin doesn't move up and down exactly the same you know uh by by the same news and stuff like that but but some news does move things around the same so there's debate whether or not like the the collapse of the of the stock market would actually collapse the price of bitcoin or would it, would it, you know, a lot of us are kind of like doomsday uh, preppers a little bit. You know, we have a bit of t- tendency for, for like having like a hope for an apocalypse or something like that to happen so our Bitcoin can go up. But, you know, that, that would probably be bad for the price of Bitcoin. So any, any, t- any time that like fiat suffers, it's going to put pressure financially on the people that own fiat. Now, the last couple of years, especially a lot of uh, folks like, say, Pomp and like um, Turdemister and, and people are like 
trying to spread this asset class to institutional investors, right? There's a lot of work and groundwork being done. A lot of uh, institutional investors and like um, high net worth individuals are coming in and getting a small portfolio exposure to Bitcoin as a non-correlated asset class. Now, you, you get someone that comes in, puts one to five percent of their uh, billion dollars into their into Bitcoin and they're holding Bitcoin and then they're all they're over leveraged in real estate and the stock market and all that. And then say there's a big uh, economic collapse and we go into a depression or something like that and the price of their other securities and stuff go down well this is going to put financial pressure on them on all this big money that came in and they may want to sell their bitcoin to dollars to deal with their debts and, and their financial obligations and stuff so all of us like anarchist libertarian uh og sort of like people who, who aren't these high net worth investors that got into Bitcoin early, like we're in it for different reasons and we're, we can hold through these massive drops and I don't, I, I'm trying to like understand what the new uh, holders are going to be doing, how they're going to be reacting when, because when we got into Bitcoin originally, it was a hedge against fiat money, but the new people that are buying Bitcoin and, you know, uh, they're, they're, they believe in fiat money. A lot of them, some of them closet don't believe in it. And they're just looking for like hedges with gold and Bitcoin and real estate and stuff like that. But yeah, so I don't, it's kind of complicated. I, I, I like to think about it, but I don't have an answer. You bring up a very good point that, that a lot of the new people that are getting into Bitcoin now, and this is, hey, this is the free market. Anyone can get in. They believe in fiat money. That's why they're getting into it. In fact, um, statistics that I, I brought up on, I think I have it linked to below. Uh, like now more than 20% of all Bitcoin out there is being held by custodians. People are getting ready. Uh, they want their Bitcoin to be held by traditional financial organizations that give them interest on their Bitcoin. This whole DeFi thing that's coming on. Uh, it's, it's, it's tempting people to not control their own private keys anymore. But we're getting more and more people who are used to that, who are used to banks, who are used to fiat. So uh, yeah. I, I think that was another subject matter that I, I was going to bring up. But you kind of naturally led it uh, into that, that uh, more and more people, uh, and maybe this will be a trend in the 2020s, we're screaming the top of our lungs, uh, control your own private key proof of keys, but we got more and more people that want 2% interest on their Bitcoin. So they give it to some company out there. Well, uh, just that they naturally don't think in those terms and all they're coming into the space because number go up, right? They saw, they saw someone got rich with Bitcoin. They see news articles when the bull market starts, all these media things start going out and it attracts people because they're, they get greedy and they come in and they're just not properly like they didn't go down the rabbit hole of what is money and learn how central banking is a big scam and like how it's probably going to blow up one day. They just saw articles saying, wow, someone got rich with Bitcoin. I want some. And they just go get a Coinbase account that gets a Bitcoin. So they're, they're like, I think uh, they were called second class Bitcoin citizens or whatever, whatever they're called. They're not first class citizens, as Satoshi would say. They're not holding their own keys. They're not even they don't even care about that. So it's like maybe it's our job to to educate them more on on why they should have Bitcoin, not just to get rich, but well, like I there's think, another. Sorry. Well, I think you just said that Trace Maris, Satoshi Nakamoto. But um, anyway, Jeff, you were about to say something. Uh, there's another factor here too. I mean, if there's a real economic downturn, what you got to remember is 
a lot some a lot of people that have bitcoin are going to have to sell it because they got to pay their mortgage they got to buy diapers they got you know what i mean they got all these responsibilities and obligations that are going to just have to come before bitcoin it's not even a matter of wanting to sell or worried about the price increase or decrease you know if if a large a lot of if you want to call a lot of people that got in where they got in early or not there are a lot of young people that are big believers in bitcoin that have a huge you know percentage of their let's say net worth in bitcoin um you know if 80% of your net worth is in bitcoin and you lose your job for a year you're going to have to sell some of it right to just pay for those basic necessities so i think that's another factor that's got to be considered here as well but then also contrary there like if you've got 80% of your net worth in bitcoin and then the stock market collapses you're not going to give a shit because most of your wealth is in bitcoin so you're not going to add to sell pressure for like stocks going down so there's kind of like game theory on both sides of this but i feel like the economic weight of the people that are coming into bitcoin in the last couple of years would add more sell pressure if the stock market collapsed because they have a lot of their net worth in the traditional system. Right, and you got to you got to remember, right. I mean, that's a good point too because also actually a pretty common way a lot of those people would be set up is they own a bunch of bitcoin and then the other big part of their net worth is their 401k, right? And if there's an economic downturn and they've got to sell one or the other, uh their 401k at work, it's got economic it's got tax consequences if they want to, you know, sell uh their stocks and bonds and withdraw from their 401k early. So, they're probably going to sell their bitcoin first. Um, because it's going to have there'll be capital gain on that sale of Bitcoin, maybe depending on when they bought in or not. But that's going to be a much lower tax consequence than paying a bunch of penalty from you know withdrawing early from their retirement account at work. All right, we've got a we've got an interesting well, lastly, decade. Though, oh yes, Adam, just to just to give one thing on there, like we can actually measure this though. This is a way. This is not like just tea leaves. We can actually look at the dormancy of coins and see how. You know, I think that it's called the hodl waves. I forget who came up with the the, the chart, but there's the the chart that shows the days destroyed um, accumulation over time, and the percentage of coins that are dormant. And it it's been relatively stable as far as I remember looking at it recently. Uh, so yes, like people ten, are holding. Ten million Bitcoin did not move in 2019. In 2019, there were 10 million yeah. Bitcoin that did not move. That that was uh, that was something we should have. Well, we just talked about it. So, so <laughs> so very good. And that's uh, that's getting us lined up for the having. Now we've re we're, we're 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 here at the end of the show here, definitely. But I want to, I guess, a closing question for everyone, or or just there they everyone's take on the. Uh, because I don't know if you guys, the way the rotation goes, I don't know the next time you guys will be on the show. Um, it might not be till after the halving at, at the, because we got lots of guests to rotate in. The best guest in the freaking space on this show, by the way, pound that like button. I bring in new people all the time. This, you guys have been awesome. Um, but having, let's just hear uh, everybody's take on the having. They can say anything they want to say about the having because it is it is the event of, of the year and it is coming up in, in May. So uh, Simon, what's your take on the having? In a year's time, we'll be at $10,000 per Bitcoin. I'll just give you this. I'll give you this <laughs> as, as, as the net effect will we'll hop up and down. And in one year, we'll be at $10,000 per Bitcoin. So that's a measurable uh, um, criteria. And I'm very curious where we, where we get at. No, no, there's, there's a... 
Uh, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, you read all the, all this uh, fun stuff about. Uh, I, I noticed the Adam Back statement uh, that that his ripples, uh, he sells off ripples, buys bitcoins. I mean, anything can can happen with the with the with, with the rates. I'm, uh, so I'll just give you the um, the rate for one for in one year time, and let's uh, discuss it then. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, that's that that's fair. That's fair. Uh, Jeff, your take on uh, the having any any thoughts about it? My probably unsatisfactory take is I'm, I'm obviously long-term bullish for Bitcoin. I don't pay very much attention to short-term price fluctuations. I definitely think that stock to flow as a concept is a very explanatory concept as it's, as it's explained in Safedine's book. But as to any specific quantitative modeling around the stock to flow concept, I'm not saying it's good, bad, or indifferent. I don't know enough about it because it's just not my main it's not my main concern. It wouldn't, uh, you know, short-term price fluctuations don't change the fact of, uh, don't change my decision-making in terms of deciding to buy and hold Bitcoin for the long-term. Yes, you are a long-term thinker. You're not impulsive. That's what this whole show <laughs> is about, baby. All right, uh, Brad, you're, you're, any any thoughts on the halving? Well, if you go by what happened over the last few halvings, we could see $100,000 Bitcoin by 2021 i mean it, it could happen i be, i just i believe that we're gonna see a hundred thousand dollar bitcoin within three to four years for sure um that's why you know i'm still in this and i pay so much attention to it and, and whatnot and i still have a, a pretty sizable percentage of my portfolio is in bitcoin still because i think there's a hundred x i think we're going to a million dollars within 10 years so like I, I don't know specifically what's going to happen around the halving, but uh, anecdotally, I'll give you this one. I, I, I just put it in your YouTube chat. So I have a friend who's got a pretty pretty huge podcast. He gets like uh, ex-presidents and stuff on his, on his podcast. And so he's got a contact with someone at, uh, that works with the SEC. Like they, they do investigation or something into banks at the sec or something so and he did a podcast episode with this dude uh last year about like money laundering tracking money laundering at the banks and stuff so he's pretty he's a, you know he's a conservative guy uh very like insider type of guy and <laughs> my friend sent me a, a screenshot of like the text message that this guy sent him fomoing on bitcoin he's like hey did you hear <laughs> did you hear that the the bitcoins are gonna go up in price and 10x in the next year go buy some bitcoin so this guy that works for the government is fomoing on bitcoin because he's hearing about the halving so that's a little bit of like an anecdote it's that's obviously not you know but but that's just i i, I in my tweet i was like is this is this really happening like are the government employees actually starting to fomo on bitcoin and, and they're getting ready for for what they think is a big boost but th th that's a great anecdote because last time around we had a having hype also everyone says everyone knows about the having they don't know about the having they do look what look what it does to a government official when he hears about it he immediately thinks the best possible outcome that now is that going to necessarily happen probably not it's not going to 10x or whatever he said but there's a lot of people that still got to learn about this and these I, I think my thing is the next few months i think a lot of people are going to be surprised about who is talking about this there's going to be a lot of people talking about it mainstream type of people and there's going to be some hype behind it and it, it, it's going to bring some newbies into the space yeah i think like this guy this guy thought he had special inside knowledge he's like oh you know 
the mining's not going to work the same. There's not going to be as many of them. The price is going to go up. You better get some now. So if that's what someone that smart thinks, you know, imagine like what you just said when when the media starts to cover this about like the Bitcoin having and and retail picks up on it. We, we this may be the you know the new the new bull market for Bitcoin, the start of the new bull market. But that, for one thing's for sure, the retail is not there right now, and yeah. we're still waiting for that to come back. And maybe maybe the having will do that. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Retail is not, it's definitely not there right now, which is unfortunate because some of those people in the future are going to complain, oh, why did uh, the big uh, the big co corporations buy up all the Bitcoin? Well, because you as an individual were not, you know, the the regular people out there are, are not buying it right now. But we, we will see what happens. We take it a day at a time. Over the long term, I think all of us are, are very, very bullish and uh, you just gotta, you gotta be patient, people. Some people are completely impatient and impulsive. By the way, love that new, that no two X hat you got hanging there, Brad. In, in oh, the can back. you see that? I didn't yeah, know of if course. That was... oh. Yeah, that's that's didn't, great. You're, you're representing that. I mean, that goes back to impulsive. There were uh, some impulsive companies wanted to take over Bitcoin, and the people said, "No, we're we're we're, we're sticking." It. And there was never a two X fork because it would have blown up anyway. That's just a reminder right there that. Uh, Take it slow. You don't need drastic uh, solutions. When solution, uh, there, there was no problem with the scaling at the time. We don't need to go back to 2017 history, but I'm always glad to see a little bit of history. Okay. Well, we'll get, this is it. We're going to get everybody's conclusionary remarks. Jeff, uh, anything you want to add? Anything you want to promo? The, the floor is yours. Yeah, I think we uh, covered a lot of really good ground here today. Nothing too big to promo. If you're, you know, if you if you've got retirement funds, you're looking to invest into Bitcoin, so you don't have to pay taxes on your gigantic Bitcoin gains. Check check out KeyKeeperIRA.com. Uh, you can also check out the essay that we talked about here during uh, during the podcast by clicking the link down on the show notes. It'll take you over to Medium, and uh, that's about it. I had a good time. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Yo, great to have you on. And just uh, when I heard you say the word tax, I thought about the term short-term capital gains. People, that's you'll get familiar with that term if you're one of those dudes flipping back and forth your Bitcoin between fiat and all that nonsense. People have asked me, well, why, why can't I just do that? Short-term capital gains tax. Don't, uh, you don't. That's not a necessity in life. You don't have to deal in that realm. All right, Simon, what's your uh, what's your take? Any any conclusionary thoughts, anything you wanted to add about uh, about regulation, anything? Okay, right. Uh, well, well, Jeff, I very much uh, appreciated your your take, your article. I had a, I'm going to browse through it. And to all of you uh, guys, I would like to in, uh, extend an invitation. Next up, when you're in Amsterdam, uh, I also do historic tours on the city of Amsterdam and the old money. Ah, cool. Um, so uh, drop, drop me a note and I'll show you around. And... Um, even if you're lucky and they're still available, I've made some some I've made an ICO uh, of wooden coins made from <laughs> tree that stood in front of the Exchange Square of Amsterdam, uh, and I'll I'll uh, keep a, a number of those coins uh, safe for you. Uh, so in time, when you come in Amsterdam, uh, come pick them up, and we'll have a, we'll have a good time. All right. Well, okay. I, I gotta wish you a lot of luck too to the Netherlands. Keep spreading the word. There are so many great Dutch people out there that are in this space, and uh, we, we we want the the, the Netherlands to stay uh, as free as possible for for all the crypto companies, Bitcoin companies that are out there. But hello to all my uh, Dutch uh, viewers. 
I love you all out there. There are many. I mean, it is. You can see any YouTuber can check their any legitimate YouTuber can check their uh, statistics and see how the uh, Dutch people. It's quite a uh, it's quite amazing for a small company, oh, a small country. Well, let's talk Canada real quick here, Brad. What, what's your uh, what are your conclusionary thoughts here? Uh, well, it was very fun to be on your show. Thanks for inviting me. I've been listening to your show for years, so it's good to finally... I don't think we ever met at any conference or anything before, yeah. but I feel like I know you because I've been watching you so long. So uh, pound that like button for Brad Mills' first appearance on the, on, the, on the show. And I guess I would say if anybody's interested in hearing long-form uh, conversations with comedians... That's what my podcast kind of has started to be. It's about me talking to Bitcoiners, no no coiners, about Bitcoin, uh, comedian friends in Toronto and around around different places. So I try my show. I try to be a little bit humorous on the show, but also think about the big things about uh, where we're going and looking at it from a non-technical point of view. So if anybody wants to check out my podcast, appreciate that. It's called Magic Internet Money. All right, he's everybody's Twitter is linked to below. Thanks a lot, dudes. This was a, this was a classic, everyone. Uh, remember, we do this show every Friday. Who knows what time it will come on, um, but it does come on eventually. I am Adam Meister, the Bitcoin Meister, the Disrupt Meister. Remember to subscribe to the channel, like the video, share this video. New show here every day. Saturday night, we'll be back for Beyond Bitcoin. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Tweet it out, spread the word. All these guests will return. They rock it. See you tomorrow, everybody. See you next week. See you whenever you return. Shabbat Shalom. See ya.